Well, today, today's catechism is a little bit similar to the last couple of weeks. We're talking about basically the relationship between faith, grace, and works. And really, this is this conversation about how grace and faith and works of man all work together, the works of Christ and the works of man uh, through free, free will of man and the, the providence of God, how they all work together. I mean, it's, this is really a dividing point between many religions and denominations across Christendom. Um, so it makes sense that these catechisms really deal a lot with this subject. And uh, I'll read the question here. And then we'll read the answer together. Uh, Since we have been redeemed from our misery by grace through Christ, without any merit of ours, why must we do good works? Now, when he says misery there, what do you think misery means? Redeemed from our misery. From our sin. But sin isn't always miserable, right? Some sins are pretty fun. Okay, not if you're a Christian and you have the conviction of the Spirit, yeah? Yeah? And not in the end. The miserable consequences, the, miser- the miserable inheritance that awaits those who are not in Christ. So we've been redeemed from our misery, our slavery to sin and the consequences of it. Um, by grace through Christ, without any merit of ours, which we've been discussing for the last couple of weeks. So then... Why must we do good works? I mean, that's, that's a question asked by many people throughout the centuries. Well, why in the world do I have to try to live a good life if, God, if, if all I had to do was put my faith in Jesus Christ and He forgave me of all these sins? Well, why do I need to stop doing them if they're already forgiven before I even do them? Why can't I just have the, the fun of a sinful lifestyle? Why can't I just go and... Um, just immerse myself in whatever kind of life that I want, whether it's in sin or whether it's in whatever else I want to engage myself in without thinking too much about Jesus Christ, without concerning myself with, oh, the weightiness of religion. Why do I need to concern myself with any of that if God has forgiven all my sins? Let's read the answer together. Because Christ, having redeemed us by His blood also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image, that without whole life we show ourselves thankful to God for His blessing, and that He be glorified through us. Then also that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by the fruits thereof. And I think that out on the second line is supposed to be our. A little typo on my part. Uh, Spell check doesn't really sound out. Words that are spelled correctly, just the wrong word. <laughs> uh, so, let's look at Titus chapter 3. There's, a, there's tons of verses we could look at. We looked at, you know, this has been a similar conversation over the last couple of weeks. And we've looked at all, a ton of different um, passages. And there are still a ton more we could look at. But these are just a handful of passages that we can look at together. Titus chapter 3, uh, verses 4 to... Uh, here, oh, in First Timothy, verses four to eleven. Who would like to uh, read that for us? And when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous 
thing he had done, but because out of his mercy, because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff that was said in that passage, just a few verses. As, as often happens in the epistles, you could talk for weeks and weeks on just a short paragraph or two. Uh, so in this passage, from verses 4 to 11, it starts out by saying what? What, what, has, what appeared to men? The kindness and love of God. And at the very first part of this, um, this uh, let's see here, the second line there, right in the middle of the passage, he says, we show ourselves thankful to God. I mean, in the person of Jesus Christ and what He did for us, God is showing us His kindness and His love. Would we have the audacity to just take advantage of it? To bypass the kindness and love of God and just... Well, thanks for all the goodies. <laughs> Who cares about the rest of it? Who cares about the relationship that you want to have with me? So when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared towards man, not by the works of righteousness, which we have done, okay, so th through the unmerited favor of God, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Because Why? Because He had compassion on us. He had compassion on our helpless estate. Through what? How did He have mercy on us? And how did He save us? In the, at the end of verse 5. Washing the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So that's the work of God, not ours. Right, that's the work of God. That's, why, that's the juxtaposition between not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And as, as Linda's translation said, regeneration would be rebirth. Being brought forth into creation as a new creation. A new creature where old things are passed away. All things have become new. And you have the renewing, the making new of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and then he goes on in verse 8, based off of this, to say, this is a faithful saying, okay? Pay attention to this. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. Not just every so often, but constantly. Because it's important. It's easy to forget. It's easy to grow lax in these things. That those who believe in God should be careful to what? Maintain good works. Because that's supposed to be the natural side product of a thankfulness to God. A true sign that you have received the love of God, that you've received the mercy of God, is that in, thanks, in thankfulness, we maintain good works. 
And then it goes on to say at the last part of that verse, these things are good and profitable to men. And it's not, it's not just because God wants us to have list of rules and, lists and rules and laws to follow. That's not why. It says these are good and profitable. It is good to follow the Lord. It is good to obey Him when He speaks. It is good for you. It's not just blind obedience. It's even though we should be willing to do that for our God. It's not just that. It's also good for us. It's profitable to us. It actually makes life work the way it's supposed to work. I mean, all of the depravity we see around us is because people deviated from God's ways. So when we follow God's ways, it's actually good for you. His ways are not grievous, the Bible says. And he goes on to say, but in contrast, avoid all the things that divide you. Avoid all the things that rip the unity out of yourselves. Disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law. These are unprofitable and useless. See, doing good works, maintaining good works is profitable, but being divisive is unprofitable. That's not the way that God set forth for us. So this is, and you know, I was studying this more in depth, and there's not time to cover all of this, but I was studying this in regards to the, how Paul talks about the law of Christ. And Galatians 6.2, I think, um, is one place where he mentions that. And then you see, what, just looking into what exactly is the law of Christ. Well, it goes back to, scripturally speaking, when Jesus affirmed, love your neighbor as yourself, <clears throat> love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It comes back to, as far as our interactions with people, loving one another. And then in most of the passages where Paul deals with the law of Christ, he's contrasting that with divisiveness, with arguing, with everybody trying to get their own way, everybody trying to get their hand in, everybody trying to get their, you know, get their opinions pushed forward. That's against the law of Christ. When everybody's trying to get their own thing, everybody's trying to get their own in the church. Everybody's trying to be seen as the best. That's divisive. That's you or me. I mean, this applies to the pastor too, right? Yes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> That's one person separating from the body rather than being part of the body. Okay? Unity of the Spirit is, part of, is, the, is the first byproduct of the, following the law of Christ. But we could talk and talk and talk about that. But any questions or any, any comments you have about this? I mean, in verse 10, he says, in you know, Linda's translation says, what, read, read, what, how did you read it? Yeah, warn of divisive persons, and then warn them a second time, and then after that, I thought you to do it. Yeah. And in my translation, it says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Verse 11, saying, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. I mean, that is a harsh condemnation on a divisive person. I mean, this is the first step of, of someone revealing themselves to be unsaved. To being apart from Christ. We don't give this enough credit. We don't, I don't know credit's the right word. <laughs> but we don't give this enough attention. Divisiveness is the first step in revealing that you're not even a believer to begin with, regardless of what creeds you hold to. And Paul is, is telling Titus, 
Is there, is, is there a divisive person? You need to reject him after warning him one or two times. Warn him once. If he repents, good. If he doesn't repent, kick him out. After warning him one last time. Knowing that this person is warped. He doesn't hold the truth of the gospel correctly. He's full of sin and he's condemning himself. When you kick him out, it's really his own fault. Even though maybe smart, maybe, have, maybe has good ideas, or she, or whatever it might be. But the fact that divisiveness is coming from them means that they're not of Christ. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and verse 24. We could, it would probably be good for us to read all of these verses in between, but we just don't have time. Um, I think we read this passage last week. This is the fruit of the Spirit's passage that gives you a list of uh, sins and then gives you a list of the fruits of the Spirit. Then Tucker can tell us what some of them are. Tucker? Yeah. You remember some of the fruits of the Spirit? Good job. Very good. All that, all that while playing a game, too. Right. <laughs> yeah, right? Tell you what. Galatians 5, 16, and 24. Who would like to read those two verses? This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 24. And they say that, they say that our Christ... Those are Christ has crucified the flesh with the affections of lust. Okay. So we see in these two verses, if you're walking in the Spirit, then you're not going to be walking according to the lusts of your flesh. That's just the way it goes. That's the way life works. If you're walking in the Spirit... You will not fulfill the desires, the lusts of your flesh. Does that mean we won't have a struggle? I mean, we've all struggled, right? And we've all sinned. We're going to get to that. And that's actually a huge discussion. I was studying that this week, too. Um, Because Paul talks about the sins that lead to death and the sins that don't lead to death. And that's a big thing in Scripture um, that I was digging into throughout the week. Um, really interesting conversation that I wish I could have with you guys, but <laughs> we're not going to have time to get into that this week. Maybe next week. Um, but I, listen to that. Let me look at that. Do we really believe this? Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I just can't kick this. Well, you need to walk with the Spirit more. <laughs> you need to seek the Spirit. You don't need to seek programs. I mean, sometimes those are helpful. But what you really need is the Spirit. This is what Paul is saying here. Because he also says in verse uh, 24, those who are Christ's, they've crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. That's why we don't walk in them anymore. Because they're crucified with Christ. They're gone. He's cleansed us. Do we take seriously regeneration? Do we take seriously renewal? We like to think of it as a in simply metaphysical terms. But the metaphysical, the inner man, that spiritual self that you can't really see, always produces something on the, on the outside of the man. The way his life is lived changes. 
what he desires, what he longs for, his deepest passions, they change. It doesn't mean the flesh doesn't war against the spirit. That's also true. But, what we, but our desires, our lusts, the way we live, it changes. That's why he says in verse 25, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Romans 1, 21. Any questions up to this point? Comments? I don't think a whole lot of the, a whole lot of this is too revolutionary to most of us here, but it is something that sometimes we need to think a little bit more seriously about to give it pay better attention, rather than just letting it roll off our mind. Walking in the spirit will involve, as Paul pointed out there in Ephesians, putting on the whole armor of God. And yeah. All of that entails. So mm-hmm. There are things we can do to right. win the battle. And Tucker's got his sword today. So he's, Tucker's got his sword today, so that's part of this, right? The armor of God. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, we, we, as we, he gives us the armor, right? We put it on, and we go out in it. Sometimes we grow lazy. And he had on the armor. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that picture, right? Yep. Romans one twenty one and verse 2-4. Who would like to read those two verses? For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. And in verse two, chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of His kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now this, this chapter, these first, this chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2 are are a very interesting passage that have led to a lot of controversy that I can't really get into right now. But essentially, chapter 1 and first half of verse 2 revealed to us that for those, for those people who, they know the truth, they're convinced of the truth, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I believe that Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. I see the proof, and I'm convinced of it to be true. But when that, when that person doesn't walk... In the way, it says that God gives them up to the lusts and the passions of their flesh so that they might be self-condemned. <clears throat> and these, these couple of verses are just a snippet because we can't talk about the whole conversation today. It says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. And then what does it say? Nor were they thankful. Thankful for what? What do you think that they would have been thankful for if they knew the gospel? Well, the gospel, for one thing, is yeah. what Paul is talking about in yeah. verse 16. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, they were not thankful for the gift of salvation. Mm. Wicked lives. Right. Yeah. All the good gifts of God so in creation. Kindness, restraint, patience. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I love how Fanny Crosby shows her thankfulness in the song Blessed Assurance. Lately, this song has really been a blessing to me. Just listen to the lyrics here Blessed Assurance. 
Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, the purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. What beautiful exaltation. What beautiful praise of thankfulness. I think of something like that when I think of the Bible, when it says, make melody in your hearts. I feel like that's melodious, even when just read, even when the lyrics are just read. That's a melody of the heart that's revealing thankfulness for the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that he gives to us. And I love that. I love that song. Because you can just hear the, hear the thankfulness. You can hear the praise just in the words, not even with the music included. But here he's talking about some, well, go ahead. So we can understand why Fanny said in her later years, I'm thankful the Lord made me blind so I can mm-hmm. see these things. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And she's visions of rapture. She talks about visions a couple times in that, in that song, which is interesting considering she was blind. <laughs> but then there's people who, they knew God, but they didn't glorify Him as God. They weren't thankful so what, but, what, but what? They became futile in their thoughts, and fool, their foolish hearts were darkened. And in verse 22, you could add, professing to be wise, they became fools. Some of these people that are like this, they know theology. I mean, how could you be convinced of the truth if you didn't know the theology behind it? They understood the, the concepts. Perhaps they even accepted it in their, in their prayers. Maybe they were baptized into the church. But yet there was no thankfulness for the gospel. They didn't give glory to God. So eventually over time, what happens? They drift away, and then they end up ensnared in some of these sins that he lists throughout the rest of that chapter. In the verse, chapter 2, verse 4 says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? See, when God is good to us, yeah, He loves us. He's good to even the wicked and the unthankful. But what does it say His goodness is supposed to do? Lead us to what? Repentance. Repentance is first and foremost a change of the way you see the world around you the way you see the truth, and that change of mind, if it is true, will also change your life. Repentance is also a change of life. Repentance isn't just, oh, I know drunkenness is wrong. Repentance is also, I'm no longer going to be a drunkard. So, the goodness of God is supposed to change your life. So why, why must we do good works? Because God is good. Because God is good. That's why we must do good because He is good. And He's been good to us. And, and it, 
pleases God. And it pleases God. Like you mentioned last time, Jesus right. said, I always do those things that please the Father. Right. 1 John 3, 1 through 15. First John 3, 1 through 15. I'll read this one. It's a pretty lengthy passage here. Just hear the passion again. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as we is. So we already see the hope here that in the future, there's something about the fact that we're going to see Christ and be with him that's going to be transformative. But what do we also know about our current state is that we have seen a bit of Christ, though through a veil a glass darkly. So that's going to have some transformative effect in our lives. And in verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. That's what happens. That's what you do when you are of the faith. You purify yourself knowing what's coming. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away your sins. And in him there is no sin. So we think we we have to start rethinking this. When it says, when the Bible says he takes away our sins, again we think of this in the metaphysical sense. He transforms the spirit, he takes away our guilt, he takes away our shame. But here he says, Who and to, you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. So you think, well, he could still be thinking about the metaphysical. But just read the next verse, in verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. So what's on John's mind is, not only does he remove the guilt of your sin, but he also takes away your sinning. He takes away the lusts of the flesh that cause you to be ensnared by the depravity of sin. Again, the goodness of God brings you to repentance. If you've truly received the good gospel of God, then you repent. In verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Why? For his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he's been born of God. So the seed of God remains in you. So therefore, it's, you can't find justification for yourself to be sinning. To be living as the world lives. Because now you're different. Now you're sanctified. You're set apart. You're made his holy people. So you can't be just like everybody else in the world. Let me keep, let me keep, finish, let me keep reading these verses and then we'll talk about the big elephant in the room. <clears throat> in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Okay, so there's two. He's making it a little bit more practical here. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God. Okay, so right before he said, if you're truly born again, you're not going to be having a life of sinfulness like, like the world around you. Now he's adding to it here, if you're truly born again, you are going to be working the works of righteousness. You must see the difference there. There's a difference between, I'm no longer stealing, and now, just like Paul said, let the thief who stole steal no more, but let him work so that he might provide for the needs of others. So there's the ceasing from sin and the working of righteousness. We don't become empty. Christ didn't save you just to empty you of your sin, but to fill you with his righteousness. Your sin is gone, but then what? Does that automatically make your living righteous? No. Not without another part of the transaction. Because he didn't save you to just empty you and leave you empty. So, you're not supposed to be living the sinfulness of the world. But also, he says, he who does not... um, Let's see here. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So, if we have not been filled with the righteousness of Christ... That's also symbolic of the fact that we're not even a believer and that we're still ensnared by the sinfulness of the devil. And perhaps our religiosity has simply come from our culture, has simply come from the fact that we live in a Republican state that's against abortion and, um, you know, murder and theft and all these types of things that, yeah, they're in the Bible, but they don't necessarily mean that you're a Christian. I can't tell you one person in the United States I've ever met who wished somebody would have murdered them. (laughs) Who likes murder. You know, even though that's a biblical thing. Just because you like a biblical thing doesn't make you a true born-again believer. You know, sometimes we are religious simply because it's convenient for us in our state. Mommy and daddy were Christians. My grandparents were Christians. I grew up in the church. All my, everybody that I know is from the church. I went to a Christian school. Everything around me has always been this circle. So that's just what I know. That's how I live. That's how I've always lived. That's just what's convenient for me. That does not make you a Christian. That does not make you righteous. Just because it's your cultural context. And it also goes on to say, nor he who does not love his brother. You don't love your brother, then you're still the child of the devil. You don't love, then you're not under the mercy of God. That's what he's saying here. For this is, in verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brothers righteous. Remember, God rejected Cain's sacrifice and received Abel's sacrifice. Therefore, making a distinction between Cain and Abel. Cain being, you know, the the self-righteous one. Abel being the actually righteous one. In verse 13, he says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. Because we love the brethren. And that goes on to the, uh, the, the last part of that answer. That we ourselves may be assured of our faith by the fruits thereof. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. 
you have heard that it was said, the only assurance that you have is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's true, and this is a subcategory of that. If you have truly been born again, what is the biblical sign, the, the very clear biblical sign that you've been born again? That you love the same way you've been loved. At least that you love your brother. We talked on Sunday about how you also love your enemies. And he says, he who does not, abide, he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I guess you could just end, cap that off by saying, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. All of this is, is built on what Jesus did for us. That's the, that's the picture of what it is we have been regenerated into. Okay, the old things are passed away and all things have become new. Well, what's the newness look like? If you want to know, look at Jesus. Because that's the image that we're being conformed into. And if we're not being conformed into that image, then you can be assured that you're not in Christ. If you want to do a deeper study on 1 John, maybe we'll do that as a church someday. But 1 John is all about that subject. The assurance of our faith the true gospel taking root in your soul, being, being, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, evidenced, that's not the word I was looking for, but it works for now, um, through your life. That's what First John is all about. If you're saved, you will be drastically different than everybody around you. And this is just a little snippet of his case that he's trying to make to his audience. And in all honesty, the big thing that he nails is the love for the brethren. He talks about that time and time again through this short book. That those who are born again love the brotherhood. They love it. They will do anything for it. There's nothing they wouldn't do for their God and for their brother. That's a sign of true discipleship. That's a sign that you've been renewed, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So why must we do good works? Because we must do good works. It's in us now. It is us now. If we've been renewed and regenerated. I mean, if you want to just simplify it, why must we do good works? Because we must. I have to. I can't do anything else. That's what I want to do. It's part of me now. I'm different. I'm renewed. I'm regenerated. I can't live without doing good. Because this is the light of God shining out through me. I can't just live my life like everybody else. In obscurity, just going to work, doing my thing, coming home, watching TV, you know, drinking, smoking, whatever, you, whatever everybody else does in the world. And I guess I, I don't want to leave you hanging, the big elephant in the room. Why does he say, <clears throat> um, let's see here, whoever abides in him does not sin. Did that pop any questions into your mind? Does that mean if I sin once, then I'm obviously unregenerate? I mean, we know the answer is no. I mean, it has to be. Otherwise, we'd all be unsaved, right? <laughs> so what do you think that means? You have to consider it in the context of how John started out. 
Right. So he's not contradicting right. himself. So mm-hmm. start with that. Right. Yeah. So you start with that. John assumes in all the things that he's just like what just like when the when the Bible says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It assumes that you're believing all the tenets of the gospel, <laughs> not just believe that he existed. So there's an assumption that lays as the groundwork for this basic statement um, that we are all sinners, that we all sin, that our past, present, and future sins are forgiven in Christ. So, why does he say if you sin, you're not abiding in him? What do you think? If that's your lifestyle, yeah. Like for instance, in Galatians, the part, a portion that we skipped over was, for the flesh, in, ver- in chapter 5, verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are contrary to one another, so that, if you, do not, so you, that you do not do the things that you wish. So that already assumes that there are some things that we do that we just didn't want to do. We just gave into the flesh <laughs> momentarily. Keyword being momentarily. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. By the, by the way, when he says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. It means when you do fall, you're not condemned for being a lawbreaker because you've been forgiven. But the point also being that that's not going to be our lifestyle. And he's get telling you the lifestyle of those who are in the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, Lewdness. So you have a, a vast array of sexual sins that you have just received into your lifestyle. If you have just received them into your lifestyle, that is contrary to the newness of God. And then idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath... Selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies. If these are the ways that you walk, if these are normal parts of your life, then you can then you could probably assume that you are warring against God rather than being on His team. If you're an idolater, if you're a sorcerer, if you're somebody who's constantly hating people, if you're always if you're always against people, if you're always jealous of somebody. If you're always wrathful, you're always, you're always outbur- like he says, outbursts of wrath. If you're always exploding in anger, if that's just the way of life for you, if you're constantly seeking your selfish ambitions, and that's just what you know is the way of your life. Dissensions, heresies, if you're given to a vast array of heresies, if you're given to envy, if you're just an envious person, just always have been, it's always been part of your life, you're just envious. Murderer, drunk, revelries, which I didn't look that word up, but I'm not exactly sure what revelries means. And the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who have made any of these, or combination of these, a part of normal life, what does it say about you? You will not... I prayed a prayer. I prayed a prayer when I was 12 and invited Jesus to come live in my heart at camp. Well, is Paul wrong? Did Paul admit? Are you the exception? (laughs) Why? Because 
when you are truly saved, you're renewed and regenerated. And you can't, this can't be part of your normal life. Okay? This can't be your way of life. You can't be given to these so that you're consistently characterized by these things. We're different. We're sanctified. We're drawn out. We're renewed. We're cleansed. We're regenerated. That makes everything new. It doesn't mean you don't fall sometimes. But the fall is not the norm for you. Because you've been regenerated. And I'm not going to be the legalist who says, you can only sin two and a half, two and a half times a day. If it's three or four times a day, then you're unregenerate. I can't say stuff like that. The Bible also says the Spirit... The spirit um, convinces our spirit that we are the children of God. So if this is convicting, then the spirit of God might be teaching. If the spirit is, is in all of these things, reassuring you, yes, based off of the assurances that you can, be, you can allow yourself to be assured by the assurances that God gives you. If you truly love the brethren then let that reassure your heart that you are being conformed to the image of the Son. Because that's what John said. John said that if you really love the brethren, you can be assured in your hearts before God. Because you're being conformed to the image of Christ. And unbelievers don't do that. Unbelievers cannot be conformed into the image of Christ. They can be conformed into the image of some sort of religion. Or social structure. But not the image of Christ from within. Because they're not regenerate. They're not renewed. And I just want to... Well, 1 Corinthians 6.20 is really short. It just says, You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Why must we do good works? Because you were bought with a price. You're not your own anymore. But what does the Bible say about liberty? I'm not a slave anymore. Yes, you are a slave. You're God's. The most benevolent, loving slave master you could ever have. It's not bad to be a slave. It's not bad to be bought. You're just not a slave to sin anymore. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body because you're not your own. In your spirit, which are in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So why must we do good works? Because you're God's now. You're His possession. You work for Him. You don't have a choice. So we must do good works because we must. We're renewed. We're regenerated. That's what I want to do. I want to do good. I want to love the brethren. I want to serve God. And I want to glorify Him in every ounce of of person I am, both physically and metaphysically. That's what I want to do, everything. I want to glorify God. Because I've been bought, I'm His now. He's, he has given me the good news. He has renewed me, He has regenerated me, and I'm His now. That's why I must do good works. I cannot accommodate the foolishness that says, that's ah, forgiven, I might as well go ahead and do it. <laughs> I can't abide with that kind of foolishness. Because I'm renewed. I can't, I, can't, I can't see that as being logical. I can't see that as being a good way of life because my mind is new. 
We have a new vision that the flesh doesn't see. And only somebody in the flesh would say something like, eh, it's forgiven, I might as well just do whatever I want. Only somebody in the flesh could make sense of that. Someone in the spirit cannot make sense of that. Because we're new, we're different, we're sanctified. Any questions, any, any additions, anything you'd like to add? Right, right. Yep. Just like in a relationship. Honey, I love you, but then you go and you curse her behind her back or Yeah, well what's what's telling the truth? Your words or your deeds?